Well, good morning. We're working through our book, Instruments book. I'm not really sure why this is on there, but... That won't be. Okay. Um, it'll be First Timothy 4 is what we're going to have. We're going to eventually end up uh, in that passage here just for a moment. And I don't know if you had a chance to read the chapter. We, um, I had my secretary mail out a reminder to you <laughs> to read the chapter. I don't know if you... It takes the whole team. I mean... He even answered when I said, Jeff, can you, can you send out? Sure, I'd love to, man. It's not a problem. Man. So I'm just trying to, um, trying to encourage you that um, all the things that are invested through the book are really valuable. Um, I, I just hate to tell you the 460-some reviews and how good they are and what people say about them. It's amazing. So I'm just encouraging you that if you're just digesting this one chapter at a time, it's really good. I mean, it's fine. I mean, that's a good way of doing it. But we're just summarizing what uh, you will read and sort of enjoy in private, which is sort of summarizing today. Nathan um, was two times, right, Nathan? Two times helped us through the very difficult ones. We said, Jeff and I said, well, we're not teaching this. We'll give this to Nate. Uh, people are going to get mad with four and five. So, And then I'll step back in at six and we'll see what happens there. But anyway, thank you, Nate, for doing that. Very capable teacher. Thank you. Uh, so we're talking about following the wonderful counselor. And I just wanted to just sort of summarize some of the main points. We only have 30 minutes, so um, we want to try to take advantage of that as much as we can. Anybody find the book or this particular chapter intriguing in some way? I think the title was a little deceiving um, for me. I didn't think I was going to see that part, but... Anybody have any emphasis or any impact in that? I'm trying to put you on the spot right now. So, okay. Well, I'll just try to summarize it then. And you go home and read it, if you would. This would be encouraging to you for because you're going to learn some basic principles in here. I um, really enjoyed, and I have a couple of places that I will quote him and we'll read, you know, from the from the book just for a second to try to get the number one thing. But one of the emphasis on page 96, he says, being an instrument of heart change means following Christ's example and focusing on the heart, starting with your own heart. Now, it's interesting. He he brings this up. He brings it up in several parts. He says real change is internal and not external. Now, if you're not really familiar with the biblical counseling, practical theology kind of a perspective, we're always focusing on what motivates us that drives behaviors. We're not really interested in just managing behaviors. That's moralism. And, uh, and so that's really counterintuitive because what you really want in life, what you really value in life will come out in your behavior. So it's, it's, for some of us in the room here, it's sort of uh, it's, it's just redundant. But for some others, they've never really heard that. So they're always looking for something to change on the outside. We're saying real change is something that happens on the inside because when God's doing the work in our heart, then we see that uh, properly. I didn't bring my, my board in here, but typically what I'll do is there's two parts to life. What you stand on is what you believe in life, uh, faith and your theology. And then what you experience, I usually run from the head out or from the heart out, um, is, is the external part of life, the pressures, the trials, the temptations, 
And those things are, are uh, things that we want changed. But once we start changing from the inside, we see it from God's perspective, then we can interpret those things in life perfectly, redemptively. So real change, he says in the book, really, uh, it's pretty profound, page 96, that uh, real change, as he says, in fact, he even says, I quit serving God when he was, I don't know if you remember the story about him preaching to Pete rather than pre- preaching what God said and became a man pleaser at that moment. But he said, I quit, I realized I quit serving God and started began pleasing Pete, the, the guy who was evaluating him in the service. So I was becoming enslaved and bitter because of it. So real change is, is an internal process. Real change means understanding and submitting to God's calling, which shapes your life and relationships. Now let's let's take a gander at First um, Timothy four, um, starting in verse fourteen. Now First Timothy is in the T's, if I remember right. Um, and starting verse thirteen. We can start at 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers uh, believers in, the wor- in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear. Again, he's talking the emphasis of the power of truth in our life and our call. What is our call? He uses the term um, incarnate. And the work that we're, we're doing incarnate work for Christ. That's not, it's more than just an event. It's a continued process that once we are saved and we're the elect, then the Spirit of God in us calls us to complete that work and to share and encourage one another. You know, the 13 one another is a big series that uh, Nate did. was really a culmination of being an ambassador and being working through that in, um, incarnation. But... He says this, that uh, we're trying to live out these relationships. I want to try to connect the dots on that. So our personal ministry to our friends and family begins with our own hearts. It's the log idea. What's that mean, the log idea of Matthew 7? It starts in our own hearts, the log idea. The log versus the mud in the eye. All right, so it could be the same object. So if it's in your eye, it looks really small. And if it's in my eye, she lost my vision in her life, so I don't get Maybe a teeny thing. If I don't get it out of my eye, I can't see. Yeah. So to help someone else, if I put it in trips terms, to help someone else in our call is to first address our own issues, is to be at least aware of where our weaknesses are, what we think, why are we thinking this way, um, you know. And then we give much more grace. When I'm starting to, I have to uh, confront, I have to really think about, okay, now is this about me because this subject came up, so... How much of this is about me as well? So it always, to help someone, you always have to start with the log idea in your own eye. A second um, emphasis here is from page 98. Um, and the bottom line is the problem is not that God is not here or that he is inactive. The problem is that we don't see him, First Peter 1.8. 
is the passage, and we'll look that up in a second. What's the implication here? He says on page 98, the biggest problem in our relationships and I'm working through the being an uh, incarnate work of God, you know, to be an ambassador of the Lord in, in his work. And that's in our family, parenting, marriage. We're an ambassador of Christ. So the bottom line is we don't see God most of the time. What does he mean by this? Do you remember? Okay. Yeah, and he's saying that, uh, you know, of course, we, he's a spirit, so we can't see him, but there is an issue of living by faith that we don't see him, and that's what he says in First Peter 1, but... We're seeking some type of human glory if we're not seeking God's glory. So if we're trying to manipulate a relationship or we're trying to force a spouse or a a neighbor, a child to to get in line, then we're trying, we're circumventing the the glory of God that wants to do the work in there. We can't, people won't change. God said, I will complete that which I began, that good work that I began. So we have to understand that it's about God's glory. And if we're not, we're glory hogs. He, he called it about pseudo-glory is what he called it in the book. It's a pseudo-glory. I think I forgot about that sometimes. Just in the, the carnal living is really trying to rob God of his glory is what it is. Carnal living is just robbing God of his glory. Think about times, you know, where your confrontation, some trial or tribulation, your responses when you robbed God of glory. Um, and... I don't know all the details of what you what you were going through, but seeking a human glory. Um, I want it done on my time. I want it done my way. Um, I'm trying to help people, even in parenting, to, to bring the Lord in it. This this was not an act of love when you hit your brother or sister. And so this did not please the Lord. Those kind of terms uh, bring God more glory than just saying, I don't want you to do that, or "That's you broke the rule, or you made me angry. Um, also, in this vain because we're working up to a point on page 100 but there's another emphasis that we can maybe discuss a little bit is that we talked about the central character is christ and the central theme of the story is grace and it must be the central theme of our own personal ministry and discipleship as well what is he saying here in the in our normal vernacular in our own terms what's he saying Think about relationships, the dynamic of your relationships. Hey, buddy. Okay. Well, Jesus is the ultimate exposition of how God intends people to think. Christ must be the central character, the central theme. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate exposition of how God intends people to think and live. And so that's he's talking about us as we're ministering to our families, as we're ministering to one another, and, and we're ministry. He's talking about the biblical counseling ministry too as well. As we're helping one another and discipling, we have to keep thinking that the bottom line is that we want them to think how God thinks. How, how do we know what God thinks? 
because of the Bible. So that's why we call ourselves a biblical Christians or Bible-believing Christians. I don't know if there's any other Christian, but that's what, you know, some people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a Bible-believing Christian. I don't understand that, but, you know, that's how we understand what God thinks is what God said to us, right? And how about live? What does that mean? Christ is an exposition of how God intends people to live. Okay. His example. His example. Right. So, I mean, are you using those principles? Are you thinking through that implication when you are in confrontation? Are you thinking that through when you're challenged and you have to make a response or when you're um, maybe wrongly accused, when you're uh, facing a trial or temptation or tribulation? How do you respond to that also is, is an indication are you really living out or thinking the way God thinks? I enjoyed the, the conference on the first um, conference was on just recently we've gone to an ACBC in, in Memphis uh, the medical doctor who's a counselor said that people are either chemically imbalanced which means they, are, they have a disease or something you can measure or they're thinking imbalance which I really like that they have a chemical imbalance which means their body's diseased and they, they can't help what they do because you can measure that disease or they have a thinking imbalance, which is more of a spiritual issue. And so I thought that's, that's a good thing way, way of looking at that. But also it refutes the foolishness of the worldview that we are rooted in and replaces that with a new agenda. Now, he talks about this. Um, what do you think he's saying about this whole part? I'm sorry? He refutes the foolishness of the worldview that we're rooted in. What's the foolishness? What is he talking about? Is there a scripture that comes to mind about the foolishness of this world? Our foolishness, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, second chapter, our foolishness. And replaces that natural thinking, which is foolishness, that we're smart enough to do this, that we're capable enough, that we are equipped enough, that we can be independent and survive. Um, it's a foolish thinking, and the world has, and it's and it sort of um, infiltrates the church on a regular basis that we be, try to become very independent. And we, our kids, should be leaving our home knowing that they have to be dependent on God to make it. That's the most important thing. And so he talks about this new agenda. What is the new agenda? What's the new agenda? Okay. Okay. Remember that passage he talked about here in Second Corinthians five. We've shared this in this class several times, where he said those who he saved, you know, those who were he's died for, were no longer live for themselves. So that's a new agenda. The new agenda is I no longer live for myself. Some of my counselees, I'll say that I'll say. Now, is this your thinking on the new counselee or the old thinking? Is this the new man or the old man? Because sometimes we, we don't. We just function and we slush everything in there. We just sort of try to sanctify the, se- the secular of our life. And we really need to, to see the, the, 
the line of uh, when we were, you know, thinking in human terms or thinking in the spiritual terms. Because two things going on. He talked about this war um, of of what's going on in us. So does that? Yeah. Does that reflect the mindset of Colossians three, where it says? That you've been raised up with Christ. Mm-hmm. Keep seeking things above where Christ mm-hmm. is. Set your mind on the things above. Yes. Does this reflect the same thing, a kind of a mindset? Absolutely. You? No, that's exactly what he was saying. He was saying that there is two mindsets. But we're, we're supposed to be more um, aligned, or we're supposed to align ourselves with the new mindset of keeping our, of, of thinking like Christ. Think about this in 1 Corinthians again, too. The natural man thinks that only the natural things have no spirit in them at all. They're not the spiritual discerning. Then verse 15, it says, but we have the mind of Christ. But you know what? We don't function that way. And I think this is what Paul was saying in this scripture, in this, I mean, in this chapter, he was saying, look, the problem is we're rooted in the foolishness of the world. That means in absence of doing what God wants us to do, think like God wants us to think, we always digress or, or drift away from the truth he once knew. So we're always, we're, our, our flesh is rooted in the foolishness of this world is what he's trying to say. Um, I had a couple of points here. Here's what he said. He said the central character is Christ, is scripture in Christ. The central theme is the story of grace. It must be a central theme of your personal ministry and biblical counseling or discipleship. We point people to a God who not only sets the goal for their lives, but enables them to do what they never done before. His grace results in reconciliation, restoration, peace, the impossibility of sinners becomes godly, be, uh, be, becoming godly becomes possible through his grace. The new agenda that if we do it God's way, we're thinking right. If we're not doing God's way, we have chaos. The pastor I used to work for years ago in First Baptist, he always said to, called it the tunnel of chaos. Whenever you're living in the flesh, whenever you're doing things in the flesh, you can expect the chaos that comes from the natural world. So as Christians, that's where the tension is. Most of the time when people come in, they have a problem. The tension is they don't see this from a biblical perspective. They don't see it from God's perspective. And so whatever you're going through and the journey of your facing, um, it's less incidental and more of a journey of that. Let's look and see what he says. Our problem is not just wrong behavior and its results, but the thoughts that produce it. So he's taking us a little bit deeper. We're going, we're diving a little bit deeper than just working on our behaviors and just keeping our kids in line and some um, ritual obedience rather than teaching them to shepherd their hearts for them to think through some of these things. What do they really believe about where God is? Can you have that discussion with them? It's really critical. Even with our friends, we're sitting down and talk to them about crisis in their life. We ask questions. We want to get to know what they believe. And then we want to challenge that belief with what God believes because we as Christians are supposed to have this new life. The old is gone. The new has come forward. And I think uh, Paul has a really unique way of, of saying that in the incarnate work of ambassadors, and we're getting to that really. Uh, chapter 4, he emphasized on page 107. Towards my, my 
my preferences in the matter. So my daughter says she's interested in joining the Air Force. I mean, I don't think it's a good idea. So instead of letting her, God may design yeah. that for her. Or good. I protect my grandkids or my kids, so I want them to stay closer to home. So I get there you go. the self-serving advice. Amen. Whose agenda is that? And is that your agenda, agenda or God's agenda? So I think so. there's, a, there's a, a really a thought process there. I've, I've had to, I've told some parents that they'd be better off pulling their kid out of school and doing something else because I felt like their family dynamics was too stressful and it needed this. And even though I could look in the, on the personal side where this is hurting me on the, on the back end, but now I need to make sure I constantly uh, give them godly advice that serves God's purposes for life and direction towards the Lord and not Amen. just keeping my kids close to me or yep. whatever else that looks like. Well, that's good. You remember when his son he went down to, in the book, he went down to uh, watch a football game and he took his snacks and everything. I don't know if you read that. Went downstairs and settled in at the TV room and had the snacks and he got his coat. Remember that? <laughs> and then all of a sudden the door opens up and something pops out of the, the bathroom as his son he just dyed his hair green. And he comes walking out with his bright green hair, and he called him Christmas tree boy in his heart. He's like, this is Christmas. What is this? Anyway, so the, he, he had, his temptation was to, you know, he's like, what do you think? And he said, I had a million things I was thinking, but I didn't want to say them. I wanted to discuss with him, you know, what is he doing, and why is he doing this? And anyway, he sat down with him calmly, and they just discussed, you know, what did you think through this? And, you know, was this bringing glory to God, or is this something you had to do? And and he really took his time and tried to unpack it. When the kid probably looked up the next morning, he looked at it and said, I don't know what, I can't believe I did this to myself. He shaved his head, and what was what was the problem? His scalp was greener than his hair. <laughs> yeah. And his son was like, oh, I can't believe this. You know, it's like they almost pl- had to paint his head almost. just. To, and the, the bad thing was he, uh, Tripp was uh, invited to speak at a church in town. And they said, please bring your whole family. We want to meet your whole family. He, he said, that was right on me. All He's like, I don't want to bring the Christmas tree boy with me, you know. So, uh, yeah, he, he was said, but that's, here's, a, here's an idea. Um, what, what is bad about somebody announcing that they want a divorce? What's, what's wrong with that? I'm sorry? Okay, but they're saying, I want a divorce. How, how is your response to that? What's the, what's the first initial thought? That's what they want. That's their agenda. Okay. Anybody else? God hates divorce. God hates divorce. See, Tripp is saying that God, you know God hates divorce. The biggest problem is not the, that they announce they want a divorce and that God hates divorce because those things are true. But the biggest problem is why. Do they think it's okay to divorce? He, he wants to get to the why in the heart. He wants them to. He wants to. He wants to reach a person where they're processing something. They could be believing a lie. They, there's something that's off base there, and he's, it's what he's really talking about here is that we're helping them see this from a perspective of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think a lot, of, a lot of parents struggle with the advice they're giving their kids. Yeah. In these areas, parents who want to protect their kids is actually encouraging. That's a good it, point. It's amazing to me how many times that instead of letting the sanctifying work of Christ in the life of that person, parents are at odds for for a number of reasons. Parents are pushing things that really are self-serving to them, you know, and 
not really allowing a child to work through that So before they gave the counsel, they already had the wrong agenda. They were wanting something out of the out of this. They wanted to control it. Right. So I don't want to lose my kids. Yeah. Yep. So we have to get down. We can't help them if even though they, they, it might start off more controversial, but if we're speaking for the Lord and we're doing this in love and we're telling them the truth, the the end result is always going to be better. It's going to be much better than having the wrong agenda and doing that. Um, so I think he he talks about this. Um, so he's given an example. He says, in his grace, parents can pursue rebellious children, teenagers, with patience, preventing, uh, persevering in love. By his grace, a wife can put away bitterness and, and bitter memories and fully forgive her husband. By grace, people can uh, exit the, um, the position of depression and anxiety and compulsion to live in a hope-filled freedom. By his grace, uh, those bound in lust, greed, and fear, and vengeance can live in purity and courage and faith. But the biblical ministry, personal ministry, must not be reduced to a set of principles to live by. The central focus is the Redeemer who rescues people from the power of sin and progressively eradicates its presence from their lives. And so it's not it's simple. He says we're just simple agents of grace now. Our goal is to help people understand it, follow where it leads, uh, um, while they wait for their Redeemer's return. That's our goal. That's our number one goal. We're agents of grace. And he goes on on page 107. This is that part on 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 14. The incarnation is also called by, um, as, as defined by Paul. Let's just take a look at it. Here's the work of ambassador. The work of an ambassador. Uh, first of all, you're an ambassador to everybody in your world and to, for Christ. If you were saved, you weren't just saved from the, you know, the, from the final um, resting place of heaven or hell. I mean, you weren't just saved for that. You're saved for the redemptive work now. I think a long time ago, Matt, uh, Mark was teaching us about evangelism, and that was really our one of our active things that we have to be participating in. Uh, of course, Rick just gave a testimony of that. We have a message of the king. You know, why does my Lord want to communicate? What does he want me to do at this moment? I think um, I'll, I'll read a couple of those to you that are important. But let's let's discuss a couple of them. The message of the king, an ambassador is always asking, what does my Lord want me to communicate this person in this situation? What truth should shape my response? What goal should motivate me? Uh <clears throat> Pastor Jeff just gave us some good examples um, with his daughter in, in the Air Force. Uh, are there any other examples that you can think of in our response? What's the message of the king? You know, Tripp was about ready to say something to his, the, the, the Christmas tree green boy, and, and it would have been his agenda that you're an idiot. Why would you do this? You know, you're going to embarrass the family. But he went to sit down and he wanted to unpack what was going on in his own life and what was he trying to get out of this and see this from God's perspective. Um, so what does my Lord want to communicate in this moment? Anybody have any comments about that or thoughts as you work through that? I think, go ahead. I think it's just taking a moment and not respond. Yeah, good point. If good point. Thing, yep. I probably shouldn't have said it. Yep. But, but if I take a moment and realize, you know, what, you know, taking a moment to pray or just to realize, okay, I don't know what I'll say, how I say this. Right now, can make this situation go worse, or you know, you have the opportunity. 
opportunities to create conflict with our kids or spouses can go bad or can go good. Just by Yeah. Amen. So the thing is, we can even say to our spouse, or our kids, I, I need some time to think and pray about this before I respond to it. We need to sit down and talk about this. And so I need some time to pray about this and think about it. <coughs> you can even say that to get some time because sometimes people want you to immediately uh, respond. But in the conflict, there's two problems. There's the sin that you perceive and then your response. So you have to understand that you can complicate it by your response, which becomes another sin because you had your own personal agenda in there. Or you may have tried to top that. You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. That's the typical uh, James 4 quarreling that they talk about, those passions that are out of control. So what is the message of the king? That's the question we have to ask. What does he want me to communicate at this very moment in this trial or in this temptation? The second thing is the method of the king. How does the Lord bring change in me and others? Um, He actually says this. He says, I ask, how does the Lord bring change in me and others? How did he respond to people on earth? What responses are consistent with the goals and resources of the gospel? Interesting. The method of the king. How should I respond? So what does he want to do in change? Remember, it's a couple things. He's going to talk about this at the very end. We won't have time to touch on it, but he talked about, you know, Speaking, doing, um, those elements, uh, love, know, speak, and do. But I thought it was pretty interesting. The third one was the character of the king. This is where we're, not, we're in it ourselves and this conflict. How can I faithfully represent the character that motivates his, what is that? The redemption or redemptive work. The character of his redemptive work. What motivates in, what, in my own heart, what motives in my own heart could hinder what the Lord wants to do in this situation? I think Jeff just brought it out. Is that, you know, maybe the Lord wants to show her something. And I had to quickly understand that with the six boys, I couldn't live out my dreams for them. You know, I wanted my youngest son to play baseball, uh, Brent. And I'd take him to the cages, and I was a catcher in college, so I wanted him to pitch to me. And he was throwing 80s and 90s like it was nothing, 100 of those pitches, really strong. He's 6'5". I said, you'll be taken right into the big leagues right away, you know. And I didn't make the big leagues, but I, I knew that I, I thought he's got a chance, you know. And he's like, I'm going to be a doctor. Don't you get it? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, so never mind. So, so I can't fulfill all my dreams to your kids and really – I can't, I have to represent what really, what is God trying to do? What's the redemptive work? What's the journey for our kids and for our family that that Christ is taking people through, the character of that? So he, he ends up with this. He says, we must turn our backs on the uh, claustrophobic confines of our own many kingdoms and open ourselves up to the grandeur of the kingdom of God. And the glory of representing him. Being an ambassador means following the example of the wonderful counselor and our words and responses wherever and with whoever whoever we are with. And then he goes on to this whole thing of the love, speak, um, and do with the real gospels at work. The focus of Christ's work is a is to deliver us from the bondage to ourselves of our to ourselves 
from ourselves and the most subtle and most foundational form of idolatry. So here's, here's the idea, I think, what he was saying here is that the number one thing that God wanted to deliver us from was us. Does that make sense? Us. Because we're the little mini kingdom that we try to keep control of. I try to maintain control of that. I want the kids to do exactly what I want. I want the spouse to do exactly what I want. And I try to control this little mini kingdom world when, when it's really a surrender to Christ and his kingdom and what work God is doing by grace in them on his timeline, if that makes sense, right? Questions, thoughts, or comments? Okay, Father, thank you for our time and a little glimpse of kingdom work. Forgive us of our many kingdom mentality and trusting in ourselves. Help, help us to speak truth and understand grace and to be grace agents, gospel agents for you, the ones that bring the grace and uh, that we can speak the truth in love and know that you're doing the work. Not, we're not trying to do the work. We're presenting truth as it represents the Redeemer himself. And so thank you for my friends in this room. May you give us wisdom to live and discernment to live for you and to represent you well as ambassadors of Christ. We love you and praise you. Be with our pastor today as he speaks and teaches us. And may we glean the spiritual food from that table today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. See you next week. That's chapter 7. I think... uh,